Good Monday morning, folks. Today is October 24th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. And for those of you who are coming back for more, I'm blessed you're here. Be sure to tell your friends and your family that they too can be part of the Thy Strong Word family by listening over the air on AM850 in St. Louis, online at kfuo.org, or through their favorite podcasting app. Well, we're also grateful to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation for sponsoring this program. Learn more about their translation and publishing work at lhfmissions.org. And while you're online, send me an email too. Ask a question, make a comment, or just say hello. It helps me to hear from you because you too are part of the conversation. Email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Well, our text for this morning is in Daniel, now chapter 7. The genre of Daniel's book has changed. The narrative way in which he described the events in the courts of Babylon have now given way to apocalyptic visions and interpretations, prophetic writing. Daniel, chapter 7, introduces a vision that Daniel himself had during the first year of Belshazzar's reign, so that's about 550 B.C. Belshazzar, you'll remember, is the crown prince of Babylon, ruling in his father Nebuchadnezzar' absence, and this frightful vision is of four unique beasts. But what does it mean? What does it mean for Daniel, for history, and for believers today? Well, to help us navigate and interpret Daniel 7 this morning, I'd like to welcome my guest, the Reverend Dr. Jason Wagner, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in High Ridge, Missouri. Pastor Wagner, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited to have you on. I know that you were on previously with my predecessor, so I'm excited to see what we can do together. Um, I know we have a lot to get to in today's text, but before we get started, would you mind sharing, for my sake and for uh, maybe new listeners, share what's going on with you and how God is working through you and uh, your ministry? Well, I appreciate the question. Um, Well, our Congregation here at Hope is probably like many congregations uh, around the Synod, uh, in that the fall is always a busy time of year. Uh, we recently had uh, our big church picnic. We have all kinds of other fall events coming up. But what it made me think about in listening to the introduction is that every year our Sunday school uh, always collects our Sunday school offerings for Lutheran Heritage Foundation. And this past Sunday, we had our mission Sunday that we celebrated. And so we talked about our project for this year, which is uh, collecting funds for Bible books for Ukraine. Uh, We all know uh, the extremely difficult circumstances and Lutheran Heritage Foundation uh, has worked with Ukraine for years. And here recently, they had damage to a lot of their materials that they share in the Ukrainian language, as well as in Russian. And so in working both within the country and with refugees throughout Europe, uh, we highlighted their work uh, on Sunday. So, uh, you know, it's it's one of the exciting things when you get to talk uh, about the mission work of LHF or we get to have a chance to talk about the scriptures uh, through the work of KFUO. 
uh, you get a sense of the larger work of the gospel uh, that stretches all around the globe and all throughout time, as we'll be talking about in Daniel. Before we begin, would you mind starting us off in prayer? I would be happy to. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you open your word to us, a word that uh, to Daniel at first was concerning, and yet as we hear your word and understand it through your Son, Jesus Christ, we hear words of hope and comfort and encouragement in the midst of every circumstance, bring that sense of peace and assurance to your people in all places today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll be reading from chapter 7 of the book of Daniel, the English Standard Version. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That ends our text with verse 14. Well, lots to consider there. I tell you what, you know, 
as Daniel shifts from what we typically remember from Sunday school, Daniel in the lion's den and, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then it, then it shifts now with these uh, apocalyptic visions. Um, I'm sure that we want to dig in, but maybe if you wouldn't mind, start us off with what, what apocalyptic literature is and, and why is it important that we read it differently than other types of biblical writing? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, anytime that you want to consider apocalyptic literature, uh, you're thinking about, first of all, you're thinking about the end times. You're looking at, or, you know, in more you know, complicated language, eschatology, language that is look the study of things that are coming at the end. Now, uh, as we're going to talk about with Daniel chapter 7, it might not the ch- the main chunk of time that these visions are going to discuss may not be truly the end of the world, but they always have that in view. And so that's kind of in the background all the time. So that certainly means that this language will always be prophetic in nature. We're talking about something that is going to be coming in the future, but not only something that might be coming in the future, but I think we ought to see prophecy in this sense of apocalyptic literature will help give us a broader vision of reality. And so you have these fantastical visions that sound like for us, something that would be out of a movie or a book. Um, And yet in a very real way, they give us the sense of how there is so much more going on in the world than our eyes would immediately allow us to see. And so nevertheless, these beasts that are discussed here, are a good example of how the language is always going to be symbolic, that there'll be images that are stand-ins for something larger that is going on. There'll be numbers that have symbolic meaning. And so the words are not necessarily meant to be taken literally in that we should be looking for this winged lion or the same idea for a leopard, uh, no, it's not so much that, but they are communicating something very real about what what God's people are to be prepared to experience in the years to come. And so I, I think that's kind of the last piece of, if you think about this is about the end times, that means it's prophetic in nature, that means we're seeing more than what we would see on our own, it's going to be done through symbols and images and numbers but it's all for the purpose of, well, we'll get to the purpose of Daniel in particular, but <laughs> right. uh, uh, apocalyptic literature is always for the purpose of, on the one hand, repentance, because as we'll talk about, uh, you know, we'll cheat a little bit towards the very last thing Daniel talks about in chapter seven is that he's terrified by what he sees here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he is just in awe and fear of all these things. And so he needs time even to absorb the interpretation, not just the image itself, but taken in the larger context, while these things are fantastical that he sees, and it might be a reason for terror because you're going to have beasts that are judged and put to death and so forth. Ultimately, this is for the purpose of comforting God's people. And very much in parallel, we'll reference the book of Revelation a number of times uh, because 
The book of Revelation borrows so many of these images and language that we're going to talk about and through the rest of the book of Daniel. It is ultimately for the comfort of God's people in the midst of suffering, persecution, difficulty uh, during this time as we wait for the full revelation of God's mercy in the second coming of Christ. I think that's really important for people to understand. You know, I know many Christians who are uh, put off or frightened by, um, say, the book of Revelation or the these last chapters of Daniel because, well, as you mentioned, they have scary imagery. And if we talk about apocalyptic literature— I think it's important that people understand that just because we call something a genre or literature in the Bible doesn't negate the fact that it is inspired and God's word. Uh, Likewise, apocalypsis simply means revelation, but this type of writing, as you already said, is really eschatological. it's, It's talking about events to come that eventually will point to the end of time. And yeah, and you also brought out, and it's so important, I want to reiterate it, these are really for ultimately for your comfort, dear Christian, because you know while it might be scary, and sometimes life can be scary, and at the end God is always in control, and that seems to be the message every time we have these apocalyptic vid- uh, visions that God is ultimately in control. And the last thing that I would bring out is that you know apocalypse has kind of become the the synonym for catastrophe. Uh, in our modern world, you know, the, the apocalypse, it's the end of time and everything's going to be destroyed. And while those, while those imagery, that imagery is, is makes sense based in what we read in revelation and Daniel. Yeah. For the Christian, it's not supposed to be something, something terrifying or scary, uh, but it should certainly remind us to be repentant. I'm glad you brought that out. Yeah, thank you. And and along those lines, I mean, it it really gets towards one of the major themes that we will come back to is that this does give the impression of it being terrifying. And yet everything that is going on is under the rule of our God who has used his power and authority ultimately to bring about our salvation. And so when we are reminded of that in the midst of these terrifying images, it is for the purpose of giving us comfort in the midst of even the most difficult things that we may see in this life. Uh, would you like to take us through the beasts and start to get a, so we can get a, a handle on what's going on? Yeah. Yeah. As, as you look at the beasts and even at the vision itself. So the vision is, uh, it stands very much in parallel to the vision that, Nebuchadnezzar has back in chapter two. And in some ways, then if you're reading through the book of Daniel, you're kind of prepared at least a little bit uh, before these visions come. Although obviously to the one receiving the vision, Daniel isn't completely prepared uh, for what it is that he's going to receive, but uh, he already has uh, this in the background. And so then as we hear these words, we should be hearing echoes of chapter two already. But then when you get into the beasts themselves, the four obviously is going to be in parallel to the four back there in chapter two, where it talked about four kingdoms. So at least we have that sensibility, even as you have a very different image. So the first one is the lion with eagle's wings. Um, Obviously, uh, everyone has a sense of of a lion. Uh, The 
the king of the jungle, this mighty animal, a terrifying, a, a terrifying animal to begin with. But all of a sudden now this animal is able to fly, uh, which makes it uh, all that more menacing. And so it, it, each of these animals is meant to be scary. Uh, and so the first one, the lion with the eagle's wings, and yet at the same time, the wings are plucked away. And you see this transformation of the lion that is, well, it's the opposite of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, who uh, was made to be less like a man and more like an animal in punishment. And yet here, as this beast is punished, and the connection is an important one, uh, that the wings are plucked away so it doesn't have the same ability to go and wreak havoc on the world. It's made to stand on two feet, given the mind of a man. And so in many ways, it is very quickly domesticated. Uh, its bite is taken away from it. Uh, if we look at the second beast, you have a bear. Uh, again, a an animal that if we ran into it in the wild would be absolutely terrifying. Uh, if you're just walking along. And yet this beast is kind of odd. On the one hand, it is, again, powerful and vicious. It's got ribs just hanging out of its mouth. Uh, so it's in the middle of eating and it's told to devour even more. And yet it is kind of strange that it's raised on one side. So you have the sense that, well, maybe his right side or his left side, whatever it might be of this bear is stronger than the other. Uh, again, this helps to point towards which kingdoms uh, these uh, different beasts might be pointing towards. We'll come back to that at the end here. The third beast is the leopard. The leopard is exceedingly swift. And yet, again, if it's not even fast enough, it is. this one doesn't have just eagle's wings. This has four bird wings. And every time that number four shows up, as I said, numbers are always symbolic. So you had the four winds at the beginning of the chapter. You have the four different beasts. Here you have four wings. Uh, four seems to be pointing towards, well, every direction. Uh, the four points of the compass. And so here we have an animal that is fast and mobile. It's able to tear across uh, the earth apparently to all four corners of the earth uh, with its four wings. And then we have, along with that, you have four heads. So you even have this sense that it has ambition to try and conquer everything that it might encounter all the way to the four corners of the world. And then you get to the fourth beast. And so again, you have four and four and four. And so here we have one that will seemingly encompass all of the earth. Uh, the image is so strong that Daniel doesn't even come up with words. The other ones are, it is like a lion or it's like a bear or it's like a leopard. He doesn't even bother trying to compare this to anything else. Hmm. He just says it's terrifying and dreadful and strong. Uh, it, uh, everything that he has to say about it is more of his reaction than it is trying to describe it. It is fascinating how in these first three, he tries to describe the lion and the bear and the leopard, 
and well, he's using, I guess, the the best language and vocabulary that he has available. So when we when we paint these things or carve them or or make stained glasses of them, if we were to, uh, we could probably put together a lion with some eagle's wings or a you know crazy looking bear or a leopard with four wings and four heads. But I think it's safe to say that he's using human language to describe very uh, visceral, hard to put into words things. Meaning he's he, you you couldn't expect that what he's seeing is exactly these things, but more this is the best way that he can describe it, which helps us to understand the divine nature of this vision. It's not just a crazy dream he's having; these things represent something. They they are they're telling a story, and as you've already pointed out, they connect to the four parts of of Nebuchadnezzar's vision in Daniel two. Yeah, no, I think it's very well said that. It's just not possible, even though he says at the beginning that he sits down and he writes it down. You have the idea that he just rolled out of bed and decided, I've got to get this down. And as he's writing, he's just come, he's just grasping at language until ultimately he gets to the last one. And he, he has words to describe aspects of what this last, he tells him it's a beast, um, but he doesn't even have. He doesn't even have a mental framework for what this thing might be. Uh, it's so awe-inspiring in many ways. Other than he tells us it has great iron teeth, it devours things that he can break them into pieces. Uh, it just stomps out what's what's left over. It has ten horns, uh, and, and beyond that, then he gets into talking about but there's this one horn that really stands out to him even though it's little it replaces some of the other ones it's and yet it's still he looks closer it's not even just a horn it's a horn that has eyes like a man and a mouth and i think here the earlier pictures you have things that he's able to describe with experience that he has here he gets into describing something that this is truly just terrifying the uh, other beasts were terrifying because he can relate that to things that you know if you run into one of these things it's going to be scary right here (laughs) it's just the image itself is beyond uh what he can even comprehend of it's it's as though he literally runs out of the vocabulary to describe what he's experiencing yeah, I mean a tin horn, just sort of generic beast with iron teeth, and and then the the horn, yeah, the horn situation is very odd because of the tin horns, and then the little one, and then out of the little one. So yeah, what we're dealing with here is a a very um, you know ephemeral type of image where it's hard to pin it down, and I think we can imagine not specifically what he's viewing, but we can imagine this idea of having to describe something that we're not prepared or we don't have any experience with. And what's really important about this in one way, in my opinion, is that it also reminds us of just how vast uh, the knowledge of God is beyond our experience. So often people want God to, you know, appear to them or speak to them. And God, you know, has certainly in these last days reserved that through appearing to us through Jesus and that's the way in which he wants to be known. But during this time, you know, God is protecting the people 
against seeing him and experiencing what he experiences. So when we have these little glimmers of godly thinking being sent down for the purposes of prophecy, it just gets crazy really fast. It, it truly does. And, and like I said I mean, uh, earlier and kind of building on what you're talking about here is that in apocalyptic literature and here in particular in Daniel 7, you get, it, it's as though our eyes only allow us to see a certain amount of what goes on in the world around us. And we are given just a glimpse of the larger vision of what uh, our Lord sees mm -hmm. in all the activity upon the earth. And it leaves Daniel ultimately basically in tears, but also grasping at words to even try and comprehend it. So you're right. It does really show us in one sense, the, the foolishness of, uh, of humanity. And that many times we, we want to know what God is up to. Right. We want to know. <laughs> uh, and usually when we say that we want to know beyond what he's told us, what he's up to. And here you get just a slight of a little bit more of what he, he sees in the creation around us. And it, just floors us mm -hmm. now um do you want to we're gonna we're gonna talk about these again of course as we start to connect them to different kingdoms and their fulfillment do you want to get in before the break to ancient of days and son of man because that in itself is an interesting conversation i think so that would be good yeah and let's do we'll it come back to the i, I wanted to set the beast aside in terms of trying to pin down what might these be references to. We can come back to that in a bit, but yeah, let's, let's even Daniel, on. even Daniel isn't ready at this point to start digging into that. He, he has this, he has this <laughs> other vision, which it's hard to communicate over the radio, but this, these next text, this next uh, verses, a uh, nine through uh, 10 and then 13 and 14, these are set aside because they're done. So poetically speaking of the ancient of days and, the Son of Man. So, right. First, we have verses 9 and 10 uh, give us this description of essentially uh, the courtroom of heaven. And again, courtroom, not in the sense of judicial courtroom. That's probably right. the image we would start to think of. Uh, this is, well, I... I Heard just recently, I guess they scheduled the new King of England's coronation for all the way in May for some reason. I don't know why they put it off that long, but, hmm. uh, but it's that sort of scene. We're talking about a coronation here. And so you have royalty, that sort of court. And you have, first of all, Daniel looks, he sees that thrones are placed and it, it's important that it's not just a throne. It's just a series of thrones. And in particular, the ancient of days, this one who has ruled for, throughout all of time. That's really the sense that we get from the naming of him as the ancient of days. He takes his seat. And as he takes his seat, the image is stark in a very literal way. Uh, his clothing is white and piercingly white. His hair as well is bright white, like wool. His throne is actual flames of fire that make up his throne the wheels that it sits upon which again not immediately the way we would think of it's more like a chariot that he's sitting upon 
that it's got wheels that are just burning fire. Fire is not just making up the throne. It's coming out from the throne. Cast all those thousands upon ten thousands who stand in front of him in the court. As the court is there in judgment and it says the books are opened. Uh, it is, uh, and you get a pause there. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to sort of absorb that, because then he looks another way. I looked because he has this sound going on somewhere else. So it, it tells us that he first looks here and he sees all of these thrones and in particular he's drawn to the ancient of days. And in, you know, in, in the image that we have there, clearly this is communicating the holiness, power, and might of the one who is sitting on the throne. Uh, for the Christian, you hear these words, and immediately uh, you hear this as God the Father sitting right. on his uh, with the eternal kingdom uh, surrounding him, the thousands upon thousands. And, and usually these thousands are understood to be angels, and I, I think that's probably the right way to think about it. We'll talk about why uh, in a little while when we get to the interpretation it becomes clear mm-hmm. uh, that and part of the reason that these are thought to be angels is that all of these thousands upon ten thousands are standing they are at attention they are ready to answer the command of the ancient of days and all of them are there ready to hear about what is to be read in the book that is opened that book again not to jump the gun but this is you know god the father sitting in judgment over the world that book the book of life what are we what are we going to end up seeing that is certainly the way that i I believe that we should hear it and and that's the way and i think partly this is reading daniel 7 uh which i before preparing for today i had read the whole book of daniel but Mm -hmm. not uh, with the same depth as getting ready for this discussion. Right. But when you come back and you read Daniel chapter seven, especially if you have spent some time in the book of revelation, you hear how, you know, we should read Daniel seven, reading back through it in connection to the way that John is speaking about it in the book of revelation. And so you have the same language brought up once more, speaking there about this being the Lamb's book of life that is opened up. And, and, and I'm going to share this just because I think it's so beautiful uh, from the Concordia Commentary series where uh, Andrew Steinem uh, wrote the book on Daniel. And when he reads, writes about the section, I just think it's so beautifully done when he says that God's record books are mentioned extensively in Revelation, as they will, as they are here in Daniel, especially comforting on the references to the book of life belonging to the Lamb, since it records the names of all believers. Unbelievers are judged based on their deeds recorded in the plural books. They are condemned because of their works. However, believers are neither condemned or acquitted based on their works. Instead, they are saved simply because their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is by grace alone through faith in the Lamb's atonement. And here we have Daniel, because of God, looking forward to that moment 
that is then later also uh, seen by John in his book of Revelation. It's amazing how the Bible ties itself together. It is beautiful. And, and uh, the theme in particular of the coronation of the Lamb, of the Lamb taking his throne, is going to be in direct parallel to the second piece of this vision, verses 13 and 14, where now Daniel sees in the night vision, behold, the cloud of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he comes to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So there, the phrase son of man, uh, there's a lot of baggage kind of loaded into that. But <laughs> on its own, it essentially just means a man. So he's yeah. the son of a man. A human being. Uh, on its own, it means just that. Now, by the very fact that our Lord, Jesus uses this language all the time to refer to himself. And throughout most of his ministry, when he refers to himself as a son of man or the son of man, no one really bats an eye. They just, well, that's a way of talking about yourself. Until shortly before he goes to the cross, he then brings back this image from Daniel chapter 7 and speaks of a son of man, and he ties it together with angels ascending and descending, bringing to mind uh, the passage from Genesis. And all of a sudden, it's made clear that at least the way Jesus reads it is the son of man is this one right here, who he has come to be is the one who is given a throne alongside the ancient of days, and it's given to him dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting one. His kingdom will not pass away, will not be destroyed. And there, my goodness, you have all kinds of uh, connections. My mind immediately went in reading this to Revelation chapter 7, where, yes, you have the, the coronation of the Lamb in Revelation 4 and 5, but chapter 7, you have this picture of eternity where John looks and he sees people of every nation and language uh, surrounding the Lamb and the throne, and he wants to know who they are. Well, even here in Daniel, when we get to the interpretation, we'll be reminded of who these people are. These are the saints of the Most High. These are the people who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and have been made holy by Him. And His kingdom is one that will never end. And there, it, it took my mind to uh, when David uh, desires to build uh, the temple. And he asks the prophet Nathan to go and find out. And, and, and he's told essentially by God, no, no, no you're not going to do this. Your son will. But instead of you building a house, I'm going to build a house for you. And one is going to sit on the throne of that house and his kingdom will never end. And so here in Daniel, you're reaching back to the promises that are made to David and you're looking ahead to the promises that are made for us in the book of Revelation and they're all to be realized in the son of man and he will bring it about by his death and resurrection, opening up this everlasting kingdom, bringing us even into this kingdom. And through his people, filling up the rest of those thrones. But 
We'll get to that here in a minute in the rest of the book. We absolutely will. But right now we're going to pause and listen to these messages. Dear listener, don't go anywhere. In just a few moments when we return, Pastor Wagner and I will continue our discussion of Daniel's vision in chapter 7, including now the interpretation. We'll see you on the other side. Take a look around you. Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Dr. Jason Wagner, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in High Ridge, Missouri. Now, Pastor, before the break, uh, you were just giving us a rundown on the Ancient of Days, which certainly is uh, God the Father and the Son of Man, a title that Jesus himself took and he connects himself to this very passage and, well, you know what? If this is the way Jesus read it, I think that's probably a pretty good cue that we can read it that way also. Always wise for us <laughs> to listen to Jesus, <laughs> uh, especially when we're in a place like, well, anytime we should listen to our Lord. But, yeah, that's but right. he gives us a certain clarity that otherwise we wouldn't have uh, in reading this text by the fact that he takes up this, this term upon himself. And so on its own, you wouldn't immediately recognize this as being about the Messiah, necessarily. The very fact that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one of God who has come to bring us salvation and life, uh, it certainly fills this out uh, completely and then begins to make those connections all across the scriptures. Well, there are a handful of verses left, verses 15 through 28 in our text I'd like to go ahead and read those, and then we can all bring this home together with some interpretation and some, hopefully, application for folks listening home today. Like, what is, what, what's in it for me, right? What does this matter today? And it does. It still matters today. It's God's Word. We're going to continue now. I'm going to read from verses 15 and following from the English Standard Version. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that was on its head, and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, 
until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand, for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom, and the dominion, and the greatness of the kingdoms over the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. All dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Well, thus ends the chapter, but certainly not our discussion of it. So he gets this interpretation. Um, who's the one interpreting it for him? So it would seem that he goes and he speaks. So he says, I approach one of those who stood there. So who's standing there? Well, thousands, one thousand, ten thousands of ten thousands. If you go back to the scene, there around the ancient of days. So the one who is interpreting this is an angel. Uh, a messenger of God is going to speak uh, in order for Daniel to be able to understand at least some of what has been going on. And obviously there's a conversation here. Daniel doesn't give us everything because he tells right. us, well, these four are great beasts of the earth. And then a little bit later, he says, well, then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast. And so we get this large description. Oh, well, these four great beasts are the four kings who shall rise out of the earth. Now, we shouldn't think about those as literally just one singular king each, because a little bit later in the discussion, verse 23, then he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom. Okay, so the four, the four beasts represent four different kingdoms, not just four different kings. And so with that in view, especially with the understanding of what was discussed back in chapter two of the book of Daniel, and also when this fourth beast arises and is defeated, especially when the defeat of the little horn goes on. And he wants to know more about that, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. That these four beasts, the lion, essentially represents the kingdom of Babylon. So the current kingdom at the time that Daniel is having this vision, since he is, he is jumping back in time, if you're reading along through the whole book of Daniel. Chapter 7 actually gets placed back in more like around chapter 5 in terms of the timing of when this takes place. But it also looks ahead to uh, the kingdom that replaces Babylon, the bear, with its unevenness, is probably an illusion, and it is an illusion, to the Medo-Persian empire of Darius, you know, the king that we meet back in chapter 6 of Daniel. 
the leopard, the swiftly moving uh, kingdom that devours seemingly the entire earth, would seem to be a reference then to the Greek, uh, the Greek conqueror Alexander the Great in particular. Not that he is the leopard, but that kingdom that stretches over all of this and far more land uh, that had been consumed by whether it's Babylon or Persia. It is the greatest kingdom, at least in terms of land, that the world had known to that point until you get to the final kingdom, the one that he strains to explain, but he wants to know more about. And he seems to want to know more about both because of the fact that it is terrifying. Here he adds, teeth were of iron, and now it has claws of bronze. he reiterates how it broke things in pieces and stamped on them with whatever was left with its feet. It has these horns. It has this other horn that keep talking. And I looked at how this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. So it's as though there are two different things going on, even within this one beast. And so the beast itself, we would look at as an allusion to the Roman Empire. Because it's going to be reigning, especially also, not only is it mighty and stretches even further, but also that is the kingdom that's in charge at the very time when the Son of Man enters the scene in order to bring about his kingdom that will last forever and ever. And yet at the same time, within this kingdom that gets broken up, uh, that, that is kind of shattered into pieces you have this idea that because there are these 10 kingdoms that arise and three of them are put down but there's this one this little horn that continues to seemingly have power and influence beyond its size setting aside other kings in its midst so what is that getting at and it would seem that this, this horn, especially when you read this backwards through the book of Revelation, you realize that this is not so much talking about a kingdom like the ones that have gone before it, that there is Rome and Babylon and Persia and Greece. No, this is something different. And it's something that is far more directed immediately towards attacking the people of God. So we can't, you know, when we look at this, we can't just say, well, this referred to Babylon all the way through Rome, and it's very fascinating, and all those things are done because those kingdoms have come and gone. And, uh, and it is amazing, the detail with which, you know, this vision matches with the history of these particular kingdoms. Of course it matches because it's inspired biblical prophecy, but even for biblical prophecy, it's very specific about things that really give it a lot of um, gravitas, even among uh, scholars who may not believe in the Bible. They'll still say, wow, so much so that there were many who said that this must have come well after Jesus's birth or something like that, that Daniel couldn't have been original or at least these parts. And then, of course, we find copies of them in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that proves otherwise. But the point is, we can't just say, okay, well, chapter closed, interesting, Um, This doesn't really apply to us because it sounds to me 
like you're getting ready to talk about Antichrist. When you understand, yes, that but when you understand and read this again through the book, uh, through the New Testament, and we read backwards into the old and understand the fullness of what is actually there, it does point us towards this little horn, which in and of itself, that doesn't sound all that terrifying. Um, but when you use the term antichrist, all of a sudden it sounds like something far more intimidating. <laughs> right. But those are the sorts of terms that are used in the New Testament to talk about uh, whether it's in the book of Revelation, you have especially chapter 13, the second beast there is the Antichrist, a term that, that Paul will use as well of now all of a sudden, not necessarily an individual and not necessarily a kingdom. But now, if you're talking about the spirit of Antichrist, it is the ongoing reality that there are kingdoms and individuals and religious movements and all sorts of things that will work against God's people continually throughout, well, throughout the time until this beast is completely put away. So earlier, we skipped over a few words in the actual vision, 11, verses 11 and 12. We kind of jumped by them because they, are, they seem like a total aside in the middle of this scene of the throne room of heaven, where the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man take their thrones. But in the middle of that, Daniel looks because he keeps hearing the speaking of great words that are coming from this little horn continually trying to draw attention away from the ancient of days and the son of man. And here he looks and the beast is killed. Its body is destroyed. It's burned with the fire. But the rest of this continues on for some time. I think this is why in particular, he says, you know what? Not only did I not have words for this before to even describe this beast, I need to know more of what's going on here because this other scene continues even during the coronation, this other little horn keeps speaking. So what are we talking about? We're talking about the working of Satan through various means. This is the work of, you know, our sinful flesh, of Satan, of the world, in working against the purposes of God, working against the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days, drawing attention away continually, seeking to bring suffering for, as Daniel is told, the saints of the Most High. Those who will receive this kingdom are continually under assault, basically, by this one little horn that still brings about incredible damage. Wow, that's a, it's a very vivid image, and it is so um, parallel to what we see like in Revelation 19 and 20. Right. So you have, you have these, the images related to this little horn. You have the beast of chapter 13. You have the Antichrist and all of the destruction that leads up to the end of the world as described in Revelation 19 and 20. Uh, so kind of one thing after another is pointing us towards 
Well, on the one hand, Daniel sees, I see one beast, then another one goes away, then another one goes away, then this one's defeated. We would tend to think that this is kind of just, well, since we just talked about, well, the first one talks about probably Babylon, the Persia, all of these ancient kingdoms, and everything's kind of tied up in a neat bow and we're, everything's taken care of. The other thing we probably could have talked about at the beginning with apocalyptic literature is that many times these visions see time as a photograph. It's as though mm. everything that is coming in the future is all in one snapshot. And he bounces around or like a piece of artwork and he's bouncing around the picture and uh, pointing out all of these different things that he sees. But at the same time, these are not all necessarily occurring at the same moment. And so this little horn continues to torment the people of God all the way until the end, until this everlasting kingdom is finally fulfilled. So he sees that the kingdom is inaugurated, it's coronated there in verse 13 and 14. It has already begun. This is a kingdom that cannot pass away and will not be destroyed. And yet at the same time, it is constantly under attack. That is certainly the reality for the people of God. And yes, at times, that is a persecution that causes pain and difficulty and even death for the name of Christ. But it also is a continual working of the Antichrist to try and tear people away by continually speaking words against the Most High, by seeking to wear out the saints of the Most High. This is verse 25. Uh, by trying to change the times and the law. In other words, trying to pervert uh, the times would have probably looked to the religious life of the people of Israel. Uh, the law certainly is the larger sense of the law. This is a perversion of God's word in total, both the law and the gospel. And this constant speaking is done all the time. And so you can see how that's done through all sorts of entities, whatever it might be in this world that would point us away from our hope in our Savior who has come, the very Son of Man, who is also the Son of God, who has died and risen for us, anything that draws us away from him, anything that would pervert his word, anything that would seem to diminish him, anything that would cause us suffering and to turn our eyes towards our pain instead of to see through our pain the suffering of Christ, who has opened to us life everlasting. Any of these things are the constant working of this little horn. And yet, the promise is, that this too will be judged. And so while all of these other kingdoms, one passes away, another one passes away, another one passes away, and even this remnant that has seeped into every kingdom and institutions of this broken and sinful world, it will pass away too. But will, will not pass away is the kingdom that is granted to those who have been made holy, whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life by our Savior, the Son of Man. I think that's a great place to end it this morning. We are at our time, but I would certainly like to thank my guest, the Reverend Dr. Jason Wagner, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in High Ridge, Missouri. Pastor, thank you for being on the show. It has been my pleasure. And thank you too, dear listener, for tuning in to Thy Strong Word. I've been your host, Pastor Phil Boo. Tune in tomorrow as we turn the page to Daniel chapter 8. 
more apocalyptic visions are on the way. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.